Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. So, of course, the big headline of the day is the top secret documents. All right, classified documents that President Biden had in his office at UPenn. There's a a center, the Penn Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement. It's D.C.-based, associated with the University of Pennsylvania. He had an office there. It was named after him. He used it between mid-2017 and April 2019 when he launched his presidential campaign. Me, I'm Tony Katz. Tony Katz, today, it's good uh, to be with you. Well, some lawyers were cleaning some things out, and what do they find? Classified documents. They claim behind a locked door. They claim they immediately contacted uh, the archives. And they want you to know the archives never was asking for this information like that matters. But that's how people are trying to phrase this. That's how they're trying to push this. Ah, the archives never looked for the information. It's nothing like Trump. Remember, Trump had classified information at Mar-a-Lago. If you're not supposed to have classified information, you're not supposed to have classified information. I want to make sure I'm repetitive on at least one subject. And I have a lot of other things to get to. David Marcus uh, is going to join us. Uh, A really uh, serious issue regarding NPR, regarding a total lie about a book they're talking about, and this war on children that has just dominated our lives, the most dangerous war out there, and we're the ones in the middle of the fight, and we're told somehow if we fight it, we're bigots or domestic terrorists. I'm going to get to that with David Marcus, uh, columnist of Fox News, in just a little bit. But there are people trying to defend Joe Biden. Oh, it was an accident. Oh, it was behind a locked door. Oh, he immediately contacted the proper authorities, or his lawyers did. What does that matter? If I don't pay my taxes and it's an accident, I'm still guilty of not paying my taxes. The president of the United States, when he was vice president of the United States, had classified information. And there's no way he could have declassified it like a conversation had happened with Trump. Did he declassify these things or not? Because the vice president can't declassify when you go to the bathroom. The vice president's job is to smoke cigars and wait for something to happen to the president. At least that's how I would be vice president. I would be the cigar-smoking vice president, and I'd have an awesome time. Don't allow yourself to somehow think that the double standard being applied of, oh, it's not a big deal with Biden, is okay. It's not okay. This should be a front and center story. It deserves to be. I have a lot to get to. My conversation with David Marcus up next. I'm Tony Katz. So more and more, conversations come up involving our children. And for a lot of us, it's stunning that these conversations are even taking place and that we have to have the conversation of, hey, shouldn't we be in the business of protecting children? It is societies that are failed. It is ideologies that are backwards that go about attacking children. The idea of utilizing children to engage bombings in Israel uh, from Hamas or Hezbollah, what they do with children and child brides in other nations. Those are the things that appall us. Yet here we are in the United States watching things happening with children that are appalling us, and there are people saying, oh, 
you're just a bigot. Oh, I guess you're not educated. Oh, you're just a parent. You're a domestic terrorist. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. David Marcus joins us right now. You can read his columns over at Fox News. His latest book, Charade, The COVID Lies That Crushed a Nation. You can find that at Amazon.com. His latest over at Fox News, Time to defund NPR over porn for kids. And, and David, it's good to have you here. There's some things uh, in that piece that I'm not allowed to quote uh, on radio. But let's talk about what it is that NPR did and why you, I mean, this has been a course that's gone on for a while. While you're saying, why are you saying NPR doesn't deserve any federal money? Uh, thanks for having me, uh, Tony. And look, there's, there's, the, the, the list of reasons why NPR shouldn't get federal money is like a CVS receipt. But um, this was particularly egregious. It centers on a book called Gender Queer, which is a graphic novel that, you know, as you mentioned, it, it's difficult to describe this in PG terms, but it has images, very graphic images of sex acts such as oral sex and, and things like that involving sort of underage characters. It, it it is very close to, if not pornography, and it's targeted at kids as young as 12. So NPR decided to give the author of the book a platform on their website to basically defend the work, um, which you know she claims is being her book is being banned and it's being pulled from library shelves. So she wrote this "woe is me" self-congratulatory essay about how you know her her book is being banned without ever mentioning the pictures. Without ever mention, all she says is that there was an angry woman at a at a Virginia school board meeting, and after that, it all kind of snowballed. It never addressed the very legitimate concerns that parents have about this kind of sexualized and sexual imagery being in front of their kids. And no editor at any legitimate news outlet should ever let that happen. If, if, if when she comes back and says, "Here's my defense," and doesn't address the problem at all, you can't run that because it's not news; it's propaganda. And when we talk about this idea of banning books, I've discussed it on the shows before, there's a big difference between saying a book shouldn't be allowed to be printed in a public library or even sold versus saying, hey, we as parents think this book is inappropriate for our nine-year-old and all nine-year-olds. Yeah, I mean, of course. And this is why, you know, this author in the essay compares her own work to to kill a mockingbird, mice and man. And, and we do, and rightfully in our society, you know, we, we kind of shiver a little when we hear the idea of a book being banned. But you're exactly right. I mean, you can't open up a store selling Playboy magazine to 10-year-olds, right? We have, we draw these lines within our society, and it's perfectly reasonable and necessary for us to discuss where those lines should be. And as you pointed out, the left won't let us do that. When you even try to have this very legitimate conversation, they say you're homophobic, you're transphobic, you're a bigot, and it's because they know they can't win this argument. Talking to David Marcus, read his columns over at Fox News. The book Charade, The COVID Lies That Crushed a Nation. You can find that at Amazon.com. Um, your discussion about saying, hey, no more federal funding for NPR is based on the idea that NPR knew what they were doing when they allowed this conversation about this book to take place 
we as taxpayers shouldn't be a part of this. But the desire to to defund NPR has been going on for well over a decade. What what in your view could actually pull the trigger to make that happen? I, I'm, I'm hopeful because of the events that we saw last week where, where and look, I was very pro McCarthy. I, I was frustrated at times with what, you know, the, the 20 who were opposed to McCarthy were doing. But we did see not only democracy in action, we saw a GOP that looks like maybe it's going to have a spine. As you say, the GOP has been talking about this for 30 years. They haven't pulled the trigger. So I'm hopeful that just as Donald Trump moved the, the, the American embassy to Jerusalem when Republicans had said for 30 years they were going to do it, that, that Republicans can use this opportunity to, to make good on these promises. Because NPR is a problem. State-run news media is always a problem. Um, it, it always serves as a mouthpiece for the elites. And Look, let them have their fundraisers and, you know, people in Martha's Vineyard you know, who listen to it in their Subarus can send them money. Don't make taxpayers in the rest of the country do it. This also falls into a bit of trend going on. And I know that you follow uh, the, these kinds of things that we're seeing this more and more push in this desire to say that kids can do this and kids should be aware of this and it's allowed to sh- uh, it's okay to show kids the other this move to give children agency is clearly a move that has people utilizing the term groomer and i don't know where you are in the term groomer i know that you do a lot of cultural commentary and i want to get your thoughts on it but you take your story what you're writing about with npr and now connect that, if, if you can, is there a connection to the stories about how it's okay to engage uh, surgeries for children who want to change their gender? After all, there's a lot of money in it, according to Vanderbilt University and others. And then this latest, where the American Academy of Pediatrics has come out uh, to say that, you know, uh, surgeries for 12 and 13 year olds who are overweight, that's the way to go. There's a... Am, am I off base that there is this serious push for children to have agency and therefore to decide all sorts of things, including their medical world and then who they love? Does this groomer conversation all connect or am I off base? No, you're not. You're not off base at all. And I'll say this about the, the groomer term. Right. And that was a term that was getting people like kicked off Twitter until very recently for even just uttering it. Right. I don't use the term because it's not particularly useful for me in, in the way that I work, but I have no issue with anybody who does use the term because let's remember how it came into the parlance most recently. When Ron DeSantis was trying to clean up the Florida school system and stop telling you know kindergartners that they can choose their own gender, the mainstream media and the Democrats started calling it the don't say gay bill, which was a lie. The word gay didn't even appear in the bill. They just flat out lied. And what happened was the press secretary, the then press secretary for Ron DeSantis, woman named Christina Pushaw, who does some really phenomenal work, she said, okay, fine. You want to call this the don't say gay bill, we're going to call it the anti-grooming bill. That, that was where the groomer thing, this was several months ago, uh, almost like five or six months ago now, I think. And look, that's entirely appropriate. If one side is going to just blatantly lie and, and use this kind of disingenuous hyperbole to describe the other side, the other side has to be allowed to do it too. Now, look, if the left wants a detente, if they want to say, 
We'll stop calling it the don't say gay bill. You guys stop calling it grooming. Great. Then we can have a real conversation. Until then, I, got, I don't have an issue with it. And, and of course it's all connected. Of, of course the idea of like kids accessing porn and kids choosing their own gender and, 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 and kids having you know, sex change operations. Yes, of, of course this is all connected to a really disturbing new way of looking at childhood. It's it's the belief that childhood shouldn't exist. Well, I mean, that's it's it's erasing the line between childhood and adulthood. I've argued that it's erasing the line between the parents and the child because if the child isn't is capable of making their own decisions, the role of the parent is insignificant. It doesn't have to exist. But we see these things in these silos. But it's the connecting of the dots that sometimes people have a hard time doing because they, they stay in these silos. Well, this is about obesity, and this is about trans, and this is about uh, freedom of speech when we talk about banning books. They're actually all interconnected subjects. Yes, and, and this movement is, is, is retrogressive because our idea of childhood is, is, is relatively new. It really emerged at the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century with the Romantic movement, with writers like Rousseau, and, you know, not to get too much in the weeds, but this idea that childhood... Feel free to get in the weeds, David. We don't, yeah, we don't shy away from crap. <laughs> you know, childhood um, was suddenly considered to be this distinct entity. It had to do with the idea of, like, getting kids outside, getting kids playing sports, right? This is where we saw the, the movement to end child labor. We said, no, 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds shouldn't be in the coal, the coal mines, right? 11-year-olds, 12-year-olds shouldn't be getting married. We, we made these decisions, and they were very, very good decisions for society that allowed, by the age of 18 or 19 or 20, people to grow into adulthood having experienced this full childhood. We're ripping that away now. I have a 12-year-old. I don't, my 12-year-old's not an adult. I don't want my 12-year-old acting like an adult. And, and so it, it really is a deep problem in our society. And I think part of the problem may well be that a lot of the people who are making these decisions don't have a 12-year-old. You know, and, and they have the occasional conversation with their niece and nephew and say, oh, boy, you know, these kids are smart. They're tough. Think back to COVID. How many times did we hear about masking and, and school closures? Oh, kids are tougher than you think. Guess what? They're not. And in fact, we now see that they're suffering because of those decisions that were made. Has anybody reached out to you regarding your piece at Fox News, talking to David Marcus, uh, columnist at Fox News, author of the book Charade, The COVID Lies That Crushed a Nation? Get that at Amazon.com. Regarding your your piece, whether it, it be um, teachers or you know, not, certainly not every teacher agrees, but teachers screaming at you and calling you uh, a, a book burner or many uh, legislators saying this is something we should work on. Has anybody connected with you? You know, I, I, every article gets some people, you know, calling me names and stuff on on social media. So, I mean, that certainly happened. I think interestingly, Nobody makes the positive argument here, right? No, I've, I've yet to hear anyone on the left say, okay, here's why it's a good idea. Here's why we really need 12-year-olds to be looking at, at, at these graphic sexual images. So nobody makes that argument. They just call you a bit. If they say, oh, you're exaggerating, you're a bigot. No. So no, no, nobody's done that. 
I had I had had a lot of positive feedback, including from um, the woman in Virginia who cited in the piece, who was the angry mother, who who kind of you know kicked this all off. She's reached out to me, and yeah, I've spoken to some I've spoken to some people um, uh, in in congressional offices, people who I, I I sort of regularly talk to, and this is definitely on their radar. But everybody has to a- approach this more aggressively, and I think. The model here really is Ron DeSantis, who not only has had the courage, uh, as did President Trump, the courage to, to address these things and not be scared of being called a bit, but is actually taking very serious action on the ground to change these. And, and that's, that's really positive. You know, we before I let you go, a question that has always moved me in, in the back of my head as I go through these stories, how in the world... Did this fight about children become political? Because it would be hard to believe that all people on the political left believe that children should somehow be treated as adults. Children can make their own medical decisions. They can make their own decisions about who they love. And I meant that in in terms of deciding their, their sexual futures or sexual presence. This has become a political fight, right versus left. It doesn't make any sense that it would be a political fight because we're talking about children. You have a you have a take on how it became political? Yes, uh, it became political essentially because nobody agreed to any of this, right? Like I, I saw something today where like somebody was trying to register in New Jersey their kid for kindergarten, and part of the form was gender identity, kindergarten, right? No, no, we never voted on that. We never agreed as a, as a society that, that, that this is a thing, that, that, that any of this is real. There is, an, there is an institutional aristocracy at work in the United States, in our universities, you know, in, within the deep state, within the bureaucracies, uh, certainly within the teachers' union. And the, the political left has a tendency, just as they did during COVID, to defer to these experts. And say, oh, well, I mean, Harvard Education Review said X, Y, Z. Like, who am I to disagree with that, right? Exact same thing. It's, well, Dr. Fauci says, you know, you got to put seven masks on. So I think, I guess we better put seven masks on. And so I think that's how it became political. Because American conservatives are far more skeptical of experts, far more jealous of their individual liberty. And I think the left tendency to defer to this expert class has created a lot of these problems. And boy, I hope they're waking up to it. David Marcus, find his work at foxnews.com. The book that you can get at amazon.com, Charade, The COVID Lies That Crushed a Nation. David Marcus, I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. More is coming up. I'm Tony Katz. Classified documents. That's what Joe Biden had at an office that he kept. Yeah, you may be surprised to learn there was something called the Penn Biden Center, University of Pennsylvania. You may be surprised to learn exactly, according to reports, how much Chinese money was taken to create such a thing. But none of that matters because at the Penn Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement, classified documents were found from when... Joe Biden was vice president of the United States. 
You listen to the reporting. Well, they contacted the archives right away. And of course, the archives never asked for anything from the Biden administration. So it's nothing like Donald Trump. Are we sure about that? Because it would seem to, to me and to the, to the rational mind and the rational player that a person not being allowed to have classified documents, having classified documents, is indeed the problem. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. William Jacobson joins us right now, Cornell Law Professor, the minds behind LegalInsurrection.com. Check it out for yourself. Uh, He's got the article revealed, then-VP Biden removed top-secret, sensitive, compartmented, classified documents kept in his private UPenn office. Now, you're taking this based on the CNN reporting, or have you been able to uh, see this uh, or, or... Uh, certify this for yourself that this was indeed sensitive compartmented classified documents akin to what we know that president trump had in his possession well that is reporting by cnn uh so uh, hardly an outfit that is going to bend over backwards to make things look worse for joe biden so that's based on cnn reporting there's no dispute that they were classified materials But the one thing I haven't heard many people talk about that I think is the biggest deal here is, according to the news reporting, this was discovered on November 2nd. Election Day was November 8th. Why did they keep this under wraps? Why wasn't it immediately public knowledge so the public could know as Democrats were running around the country accusing Trump of being a criminal because he had these materials and attacking the MAGA Republicans? Why wasn't it immediately disclosed on the eve of the election that Joe Biden did some of the same things they were accusing Trump of having committed crimes for? So I think that's the big issue. I think that the the cover-up is always worse than the crime. I'm not sure it's worse than the crime here, but I think that's something that no one has really focused on, which is that they kept this under wraps so nobody knew about it, just like the Hunter Biden laptop you know, in 2020, they kept this thing under wraps so nobody would know about it before the election. And I think that's a huge part of the story, whether Joe Biden committed a crime, whether he gets prosecuted. Those are all good and important questions. But politically, why did they not disclose it for almost a week after they found out about it? And then there's the follow up conversation to what uh, other homes or offices of joe biden were then investigated i I would have always assumed that if you were raiding mar-a-lago you also checked out offices at trump tower you checked out uh offices at at bedminster you know where where trump has the 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 golf course there in in jersey i want to know if other biden properties were indeed uh checked talking to william jacobson cornell law professor in the mind behind legalinsurrection.com talk to me about the legal on this having classified information what was the argument they made about president trump why isn't it the same argument or is it the same argument you would make about joe biden well i think it's a stronger argument as to joe biden because there are criminal statutes that provide to knowingly remove classified documents and to maintain them keep possession of them without authorization, without authority is a crime. And, you know, going back, it just takes the Google machine to go back and see all the articles written about the crimes that, you know, Trump might, the charges Trump might face. There's a Reuters article, what charges might Trump face? So they had a whole list of charges that Trump might face that would equally apply potentially to what Joe Biden did. And so, 
Uh, and it's even worse because while it's a little unclear uh, at what point Trump says they were declassified, some people say, and I don't know the answer to it, his me being the president merely removing them is a declassification. But Biden has none of those arguments. Whether argue Trump has good arguments or weak arguments, Biden doesn't even have those arguments because as vice president, he had no such authority. So I think the charges are potentially more important for Biden than for Trump because he doesn't have that defense that I was the president and when I took things from the White House and brought them to my home, that was in effect with authority and in effect a declassification act. And Biden doesn't even have those arguments. So I think that this is, is serious um, to the extent that it is serious for Trump. It's serious for Biden. Now, the Biden supporters uh, are doing, you know, uh, a defense, which is trying to draw distinctions. Well, he only had 10 and Trump had 100. Well, doesn't really matter under the law how many you had. If you had them, it's it's a crime. If you removed one and you kept one, it's a crime. Maybe for sentencing, it might be a factor, but, you know, it's still a crime. So that distinction they're making doesn't apply. And they said, well, he's cooperating with the National Archives. Well, that that might have to do with some of the claims that Trump violated National Archive laws, which would not be a criminal offense. So maybe that doesn't apply to Biden. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But that's like the tail on the dog. The real issue, whether he's cooperating with the National Archives or not, has nothing to do with whether he committed a crime well, by removing they, the documents. You know, it's so funny. That it's not even a question of uh, cooperating. This is how it got said by President Biden's uh, lawyer, uh, Richard Sauber, I believe is his name, S-A-U-B-E-R. And the quote is, as uh, reported by the New York Post, the documents were not the subject of any previous request or inquiry by the archives. Uh, you're my lawyer. Does that matter? Well, it might matter if there's a National Archives, a claim violation of the National Archives laws. But that's, again, that's the tail on the dog. It, it, that's not a, a criminally punishable offense. Uh, what's pr criminally punishable potentially is the knowing removal and keeping of classified documents. And so National Archives has nothing to do with that criminal offense. This is how they create this distraction. They create the straw man argument. Well, we're cooperating. There was no prior request, et cetera, et cetera. Well, how would National Archives make a prior request if you kept it secretly in your office at this Biden Center, which is affiliated with UPenn. It's not in Pennsylvania, but it's affiliated with it. And so uh, how would the National Archives even know to make the request? Uh, that's, that's the point. So uh, I, I think that's a complete distraction that they're creating. Talking to William Jacobson, Cornell Law Professor, the mind behind legalinsurrection.com. They also make a big deal that these documents were behind a locked door, but I have no idea what kind of lock was on the door. We also know that over $50 million was donated by China in order to build uh, this center. But the And, and there's going to be some national security conversations that happen there. The idea that President Trump could have documents, now Joe Biden had documents. So how many presidents and vice presidents have taken documents with them? I guess the question, sir, is, is, is there a belief and therefore some kind of conversation legally that this is 
standard operating procedure and therefore no big deal. And if it's no big deal regarding Biden, it has to be no big deal regarding President Trump, correct? Well, maybe politically, legally, you know, the fact that everybody speeds is not a defense to your speeding ticket. Uh, so I don't, I don't think that that's a legal defense, uh, but it might get to the issue, which is a broader issue, which is the overclassification of documents. And that's probably what the defense would be is I didn't know, you know, it was classified. I didn't know it was in the box. I didn't know it was in the folder. Other people packed it up for me. Uh, so it might go to that knowing part of the criminal law that I didn't know it. Somebody packed it up for me. I never opened the box. I never went in the closet. I didn't even know it was there. So I, I think it might become legally relevant. Uh, but the fact that everybody does it, uh, I wish that were a defense in criminal law. But generally speaking, it's not a defense to say, well, hey, he was speeding, too, and you didn't pull him over. I, I don't think that works. You know, I was going through your piece on this over at LegalInsurrection.com, and you you make mention of people who are trying to engage this defense. This uh, Joyce Aline, uh, UA Law School, and uh, does work over at uh, MSNBC and NBC News, and who wrote on Twitter, big differences between this and Trump's Mar-a-Lago situation. They were found in an office setting, not in Biden's home. Biden's team immediately volunteered news of the discovery to the archives and turned them over immediately. It's apples to oranges. But as you describe legally, it's not apples to oranges, which makes me wonder, does this person actually teach anybody? Because that seems pretty dangerous to me. Well, I think she's mixing up a couple of things. Um, it, she seems to be going to a, more of an obstruction charge that he cooperated, he turned it over. Uh, and, and so that's a separate potential charge against Trump that people have talked about. Uh, is have, you know, once it was discovered that he had this material and DOJ wanted it back, did he or his people lie about what he had? So that's a totally different. So I think in terms of mixing apples and oranges, I think she's mixing apples and oranges is two different things. There's the criminal violation for knowingly, if they can prove it was knowingly, knowingly removing and maintaining the classified documents. There's a completely separate issue about cooperation, which might go to obstruction of, of justice. And so there may be nothing here on obstruction of justice. If they found them, they immediately turned it over. They're cooperating. They haven't lied about it. So yeah, it's she's the one who's mixing the two up. Uh, I'm talking about simply that there is the same potential for criminal charges for knowing removal and keeping of the documents uh, against Biden as there was at Trump, whether it's a strong case or not, but it's the same case. Who brings it? Is this us now having to rely on Merrick Garland, the attorney general, to bring this case? Or can there be other charges brought by uh, private citizens? And then the follow-up, if it is Merrick Garland... How is it? How does he get away with bringing one and not the other? Or are we going to marvel at the legal twisting that's about to occur? Well, I, I think he's probably there's a good argument he should be appointing a special prosecutor for this because otherwise he is investigating his boss in a sense. I mean, you know, he was appointed; he can be fired by Joe Biden. Uh, so the, the attorney general should not be investigating the president um, that you need somebody who's truly independent 
So I think a special counsel, just like they have now appointed a special counsel with regard to Trump, uh, I think they probably need one with regard to Biden. William Jacobson, Cornell Law Professor, the mind behind LegalInsurrection.com. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. We've got more to get to. I'm Tony Katz. One of the stories being missed today, a federal judge just beaten up on the state of New Jersey for trying to tell its citizens you're not allowed to carry a firearm. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today, good to be with you. Cam Edwards writing the story over there at BearingArms.com, B-E-A-R-I-N-G, BearingArms.com. A federal judge granting a temporary restraining order which blocks a, a grouping of aspects of New Jersey's gun restrictions. Uh, they, they can't stop. They don't rest. They don't quit. The lawsuit was brought uh, by uh, the Second Amendment Foundation, Firearms Policy Coalition, Coalition of New Jersey Firearm Owners, the New Jersey Second Amendment Society. It doesn't challenge all parts of the law. It takes a look at this idea of quote-unquote sensitive places that Governor Phil Murphy, Democrat, and the legislature put into place. And so what they're saying is these are gun-free zones. Well, it's sensitive to have a a firearm here. So, you know, we can't allow you to have your rights here. This district judge, U.S. District Judge, Renee Marie Bum, B-U-M-B, says that these aren't going to pass constitutional muster, as Cam Edwards uh, writes about it, um, with such sweeping legislation that includes catch-alls. Plaintiffs cannot decipher what constitutes a sensitive place, and so they have abandoned their constitutional right to bear arms out of fear of criminal penalty. Relatedly, plaintiffs argue that these provisions sweep so broadly that the legislation, quote, effectively shuts off the most public areas from caring for self-defense. In the final analysis, writes this district judge, at some point on the line, when a constitutional right becomes so burdensome, burdensome, or unwieldy to exercise, it is, in effect, no longer a constitutional right. Plaintiffs have made a convincing case that this legislation has reached that point. Damn straight. You know, there was a story that uh, Shannon Watts, she um, is, is, is retiring from Mom's Demand Action. And, oh, what a, what a fierce advocate for, for uh, the rights of, of citizens not to be afraid of, of firearms. And, and she's, she's been a, a, a real important, important person. She's made such a difference. Concealed carry is available in more states than ever before. She is an anti-Second Amendment bigot. She always has been from the time she resided in Zionsville, Indiana, to whatever moved her out to Colorado and getting that sweet, sweet cash from Michael Bloomberg. Second Amendment attack bigot doesn't believe in the second amendment doesn't believe in your right to to keep and bear arms doesn't think you should have a constitutional right and the people who follow her are the same i must admit i have absolutely no quarter for these moms demand action people because uh, they sure as hell don't represent all moms don't represent my mother who carries a firearm doesn't represent my mother at all. What? Shannon Watts cares more about her children than my mother does her children? Go ahead. Say that to my mother. Say that to Diane. Let's see what happens. Woman will kick you in the shin. 
I mean, I've said it before. I'll, I'll say it again. She'll cut you. She will cut you. My mother is not messing around. You think you're more protective. You think you love your kids more. Sit down. Be quiet. No, it's 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 hard to have respect for for someone like Shannon Watts, an unserious person who admittedly started something at her kitchen table, was able to get people behind it, and then was able to get a whole bunch of money from uh from people who were absolutely determined to take away your Second Amendment rights, and she was always about taking away the Second Amendment rights. The left will never stop coming after your ability to keep and bear arms. And thank goodness that the courts are still upholding your right to do so. But the way you prevent these people from continuing the attack is ensuring that you don't vote for them and that others don't vote for them. I know, hard in a place like New Jersey. But you've got to keep that fight up. That's what matters most. Find everything, TonyCats.Locals.com. TonyCats.Locals.com. Tomorrow, everyone, maybe we'll find out if Biden has more classified documents. Tomorrow, guys, take care.